Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 15th, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So we've had a 24-hour meltdown over revelations or purported revelations from the private emails and computer of Hunter Biden, also known as Robert Biden, uh, son of Joe, um, and uh, the there are two facets of the story, one of which is the emails themselves and the material that is on this laptop that was supposedly dropped off at a Wilmington, Delaware computer repair shop and never picked up again, whose peculiar owner uh, then either handed the computer to Rudy Giuliani or had it subpoenaed by the FBI or gave it to the FBI. Every one of these stories he told in a in a sort of press gaggle discussion yesterday afternoon and then said he had said too much. So we don't know what's going on. We don't know where this material came from. And then there is this whole question about whether or not it's real. Is it, uh, is this all disinformation? And then uh, this stuff that came out in the New York post, a paper that I uh, have worked for, and freelanced for for a quarter century, uh, the article was suppressed by Facebook and Twitter. Um, anyone who tried to attempt it to post it or put it up found their uh, access to the, the social media platforms limited or the stories killed. Um, and so we had a giant tempest yesterday, not just about the details of the story, which are sketchy, or the story that the article purports to tell, but about the behavior of the media and social media in relation to this portrait of the corruption of Hunter Biden and whether or not it reaches to the front runner for the presidency. Do I have that pretty much right? Okay, everybody's nodding. Yeah. You can't nod on, on, a, on, a, on a broadcast. Um, okay, Uh so can we tease this out? Um, In what direction? The, the story or the story about the story? Okay, well, we could start with the story because the story is that one of these emails from a, um, a Ukrainian advisor to the board of Burisma, which is the company, the energy company in Ukraine that was paying Hunter Biden paid Hunter Biden, I don't know, what is it, a million five as a consultant, that this advisor to the board, not someone who was on the board and not an employee of Burisma, but an advisor to the board of Burisma, sent him an email that seemed to suggest that that he and Hunter had met with the then vice president, Joe Biden, and he was thanking Hunter for introducing them. That's That's, as far as we can tell so far, the extent of the connection to Joe Biden is this email from the guy to Hunter saying, gee, thanks for introducing me to your dad. Um, well, the Biden campaign has been kind of cagey about it. They they were, I mean, the, the reaction to it from Biden's allies was, this is nonsense and garbage, but that's not what the, came out of the Biden campaign. Biden campaign said they couldn't rule out the prospect of uh, a potential meeting having taken place that wasn't in their notes, um, which is fishy. But nevertheless, the notion that the, the post said this is a smoking gun email and I see neither smoke nor gun. The Johnson investigation, the Johnson Grassley investigation reached a conclusion against their stated interests about the extent to which they could prove any action had taken place as a result of Hunter Biden's connections to Burisma and they couldn't do it. So to the extent that this adds to the predicate for an investigation, it certainly does, but the okay, investigation so- already took place. The Biden people first said it never happened. And then I think realizing that they were putting themselves in an untenable position, lest some photo uh, surface 
where Biden is standing smiling with Hunter and this guy, they then said they couldn't be sure that there was no occasion on which they weren't in the same room together, pretty much. Well, but the um, first, you should note the first statement was pretty firm. It said there is no official record of him meeting this. The word official was chosen specifically to squash this story. It's what trended on all the social media platforms immediately afterwards. So they made that first attempt to absolutely say to deny it fully by saying it wasn't on his official schedule, which most the average American would read as, oh, it's not true. Then they had to backpedal and say it might unofficially have happened. Right. So they, that was their strategy. Um, right. But regarding the, the smoke, though, no, it's not. I, I think there is the smoke, but not necessarily in a legal sense at all. I mean, I don't know about that, but it's it's a story and it's interesting because um, Joe Biden had said that he never discussed uh, uh, Brisma at all with his son. And right. if 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 there was some sort of if 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 Hunter had facilitated this meeting, um, uh, then that would seem to indicate otherwise. Well, right, the only right. reason why I reached that conclusion is that I don't see anything in here that would change the ultimate conclusion of the Johnson Grassley investigation. Okay, I think we need to explain what the Johnson Grassley investigation is because you've used that term. It's a the Senate uh, Schmagegi Committee did a you know, basically serving Trump's interest, tried to do an investigation into uh, a separate investigation into Biden and Burisma and the corruption of the Biden family. And they released some kind of a report. Okay, it's a, sub, it's a subset of the Senate Homeland Security and Finance Committee. Senator Ron right. Johnson was the chair of that panel. And, and he said ahead of the release of this investigation that it would demonstrate Joe Biden's, quote, unfitness for office. Right. But the conclusion that this committee reached was that they could not demonstrate any tangible action had occurred during the Biden, during the Obama presidency as a result of Hunter Biden's uh, position on Burisma board and Joe Biden's proximity to his son. Right. So basically, the Biden campaign's line, if it's not this already, is going to be, look, there may have been an occasion, we don't even know, where Joe and Hunter are together and Hunter says, hey, dad meet ukrainian guy and joe says how are you you know great to meet you and then they take a and then they take a picture with an iphone and that's it that's that means they didn't discuss barisma he didn't talk about his foreign businesses whatever that that would be and of course you could see how uh, if you are corrupt hunter biden and what you're basically trying to do is keep balls in the air so that you keep this money flowing, that photo may be more than sufficient to get you your year's worth of consulting fees. Cause then that guy can walk around saying, look, it's me with the American vice president. And then he can go into some room in the, in Ukraine and say, look, I have access to the vice president and it's all done. Well, right? and Hunter did this with Chinese, with China too. Like he was doing, this was his thing and, and yeah. you're correct. And I think the commit, the, the, the report was correct to say this, that there was nothing illegal. There's a lot that's unsavory. Right. It, it is trading influence in a way that's perfectly right. legal and totally right. unsavory and shows once again that Joe Biden has been and will continue to be a DC swamp creature. The problem here, of course, is that it's not going to change any voters' minds because if you look at Trump, there's all kinds of unsavory stuff he's done too. So I think people are are, are going to judge this, which I find kind of appalling in the same way I, f- I find have long found the Clinton Foundation appalling, to be still the lesser of two evils if you're talking okay, about but, politics and corruption. Okay, but there's a Biden Foundation, which is a whole other story, which is probably more the parallel to the Clinton Foundation because it raised all this money and never did anything with it. Nobody really knows what the purpose of this thing was anyway, except to sort of create some kind of a a place to house Biden people while he was deciding whether or not to run for president. Uh, foundations are also hugely effective at laundering donations and money in a way that, that comes out cleaner. I mean, it's a right. kind of, kind of legal money laundering. Right. Celebrities right. do this all right. the time. It's yeah. But the influence peddling, this is where things get interesting in an almost novelistic sense. Because what I'm proposing is that it's not that Hunter Biden was peddling influence. He was peddling the appearance of influence. He was peddling the shadow game of influence, which is not, we're going to go into a room the Ukrainians are going to say, I'm going to do this for Hunter and that for Hunter. Now, you know, help us out, Joe. And Joe says, fine. And then there's an actual 
deal that's been made, even if, you know, even if nothing is on paper or anything like that. Then there is this thing, which is, look, there's a photo of me with the vice president. I'm, I'm a guy in Ukraine. I've met the vice president. That means I can walk around gulling people in Ukraine into the idea that I am playing at the highest levels of the American government and you should give me money and give me all this and like that. Um, that's where it's both legal and totally unsavory because, of course, what's being sold isn't any access, any policy changes, any things that have been done to benefit you and your company. What's being sold is a fiction about the way influence works in the United States that is being you know, handed out to people who don't live in the United States, don't understand the United States, and think that a photograph with a president means that you're all, you know, together now. Um, you know, how many tens of thousands of pictures did Joe Biden take in the court in the eight years of the of the Obama presidency? This is sort of like walk around America, walk around the corridors of of uh, of I don't know if you could call it influence in America. And you see these walls of, you know, sort of walls of celebrity where any, anyone who has ever been at a meet and greet has a picture of themselves with us and then puts it on the wall of their office. And there you are. It is unsavory. It's creepy. It is a kind of creation of a, of a separate class of people who have influence in the broadest possible way, but not influence on specific policies and the changes in that policy to benefit or directly benefit someone. Because of course, in the end, the problem with the conservative line about Biden and Hunter and Burisma goes to this idea that Joe Biden intervened and, and insisted on the firing of a prosecutor in Ukraine named Shokin, and that this was somehow of benefit to Burisma except Shokin, who was fired in 2016, it was the common policy of the United States government, not Joe Biden, that Shokin needed to be fired in order for Ukraine to be more correctly anti-corruption. And this was something that was believed not only here, but in the capitals of Europe. And Shokin wasn't investigating Burisma. Therefore, his firing was of no help to Burisma. He was not investigating Burisma. So the quid pro quo, not only was no quid pro quo anyway that they want us to believe was a quid pro quo. If this makes any sense to anybody, does it make any sense to you? It it makes sense to me. I have the the same understanding of it. Um, But I think to the degree that it it may not make sense to um, some people out there, the sort of late addition of the Biden, by the Hunter email connection. Um, if you are uh, on the Trump campaign or uh, or hoping for Trump's presidency, you're hoping that has influence because because it, otherwise it is such a tangle that at least you can introduce this thing um, that seems to have something definitive to it. There is there is a a, a a text about a thank you about a, an introduction, and that's something concrete in the in right. this in this but otherwise messy. Right, but here's what's really annoying: is it is in no one's interest on the Trump side to disentangle this, which can be done. What they want is to stir up the mud, to to blind you with smoke, to create the appearance, not the fact, the appearance of corruption, and rest their argument on that appearance. They don't want to disentangle this information. And the people who are inclined to support Joe, uh, Donald Trump's candidacy in the press don't want to disentangle well, this information. Of course they but that want- is their job description. And it's an abdication of their responsibility to not do so. Okay, it is not the job of the Trump campaign to clear Joe Biden no. of these charges. No. It's the job of the Trump campaign to try to win the presidency. It is the job of media outlets and the press to do that. Okay, and I haven't well- seen a lot of that. Okay, well, that we got to go to that. I mean, if you're talking about sort of like the Trump-friendly press and how they're, you know, like uh, kicking up a kicking up, uh, helping to kick up the dust storm, uh, in an odd way, that isn't what happened. What happened now has very little to do with this story. 
and way more to do with the behavior and conduct of the mainstream media and the social media companies, which we should get to in a minute. But I did want to make, ask you guys a, a, a separate question, which is if this is good stuff politically, doesn't it speak again to the incredible political blunder that Trump made by making 2019 about Biden and Ukraine? I mean, just imagine keeping your powder dry so that you drop Hunter, Burisma, all of this now without the whole year having been involved in the failed impeachment of Trump and this whole question of whether or not he misused the U.S. government in an effort to get this political dirt on his rival. I just think it's astounding that rather than this becoming an October surprise late hit that could have been very effective, he ruined any possibility of an effective late hit by by panicking, thinking that Biden was too dangerous for him to run against and trying to snuff out his presidential bid in the cradle with crazy Rudy Giuliani, you know. Do you think that's it? it Yeah. I think that Trump uh, will use whatever is to hand at any given time. I think it's more he, you know, perpetually fails the marshmallow test. So that he, he, there was no chance of his holding on to this um, to use it more strategically at a later date. Anyway. Well, what's funny is that he thought he, he could use Marshall, the forces of the U.S. government, to make this easier for him. And now it turns out that God only knows how he got it and whether or not you know this was somehow supplied to Rudy and Steve Bannon by the Russians or something. But apparently it has basically absolutely no connection to this you know, bonkers scheme to use ambassadors and John Bolton and various other people to get him the dirt on Biden so that he could run against somebody else. Uh, Which, you know, I mean, maybe you can look at this and say, well, Biden's running a really great campaign. He won the nomination very easily. He's ahead by 10 points. Maybe Trump was right to target Biden early on because maybe he would be having a better time if he had somehow you know, if he had somehow knocked Biden out and then he could have run against somebody who was easier for him to beat. Right. But I just, I, I, I don't know. This so also, now, yeah. It also has a sort of re- retro shades of Anthony Weiner's lop- laptop about it, right? Like there's a kind of strange way in which Trump is returning to his greatest hits in these final weeks of the campaign, right? It's like, oh, there's all these secret voters who are going to, who the pollers don't, the pollsters don't, don't count who are going to vote for me. There's, there's, you know, now we have this laptop with this smoking gun of, you know, emails that are going to be uncovered and sent to the FBI. I mean, it's really weird. I, I, there's a Rudy's lawyer, Rudy's lawyer. And I don't know why Rudy has a lawyer since Rudy is a lawyer and he's supposedly Trump's lawyer. And now he has a lawyer. Lawyers are the people most in need of lawyers at moments like these. Okay. But said there are 40,000 emails Gee, where did that number come from? It's just a little more than the 33,000 Hillary emails, right? It's like there are 40,000 emails. Um, okay, so let's move on to the fact that we're not even talking that much about the details of this Hunter Biden story because of the interesting behavior of the mainstream media and the social media companies once the story came out in the New York Post. Uh, who wants to take this subject up? Uh, well, I think I have a something of a hold on it to the extent that it can. <clears throat> so this story came out, and the immediate reaction to it that I saw, um, and we discussed it, was you know what we just had, which was interesting. You know, probably chain of custody is really weird here, and the facts are disputable, but certainly adds to to the full picture and not a bombshell as it was presented. And then Twitter and Facebook, independently, as I understand it, um, decided to anathematize this this item and not let people share it on their platforms. And but that so- was preceded. That was preceded by a media freakout. Okay, well, for two yeah, but, hours before Twitter, which I think 
before. So those two things, in my view, are are distinct. But go ahead and I I don't I don't think they're distinct. I think the freakout is what led the social media companies to do what they did. I believe, although we can discuss that. Which is, I mean, the the most salient thing was that Kyle Griffin, who was the producer of Lawrence O'Donnell's MSNBC show, said at like nine o'clock in the morning. No one should share or link to the New York Post story. You know, I I declare, as is my right on Twitter, I am announcing to the world that no one should share it. And this became orthodoxy almost instantly so that, like, my old friend Maggie Haberman of the New York Times writes a tweet that says, eh, this story is kind of sketchy with a link to it. And she gets 5,000 people saying, how dare you link right. to it, when she actually attacked the story. I called her MAGA Meg. <laughs> so, so we need to get back to this because it's it's a much more relevant thing about the, the political environment yeah. right now. But Twitter's handling of this has been absolutely atrocious. And I can cite Jack Dorsey, who said essentially that same thing. Initially, Jack Dorsey they, is the CEO of Twitter. Initially, they said, yeah, we blocked this thing because it contains unverified information which is a completely laughable excuse. It's not as though they would ever do that to any other story relevant related to any other subject in part, because just about every other story that involves leaked information and is a blockbuster story as a result of it, you can't independently verify as a Twitter moderator. That just doesn't make any sense. So they later revised their explanation retroactively saying that we actually did this not as a result of that, but because there was personal info in the images on that were published on this personal info related to these emails. And that's a violation of, of the terms. And there's no metadata in these images. Like what the hell does that have to do with anything? Okay. Um, last week, last week, the New York times published a blockbuster two week, whenever it was published a blockbuster story, uh, revealing Donald Trump's personal, uh, tax forms. That is a felony. Like the, whoever leaked those tax forms to the New York times committed a felony and the chain of custody for those forms is not clear and isn't stated in the story and there's no metadata and all of that. So either they're saying that uh, the emails and things are, um, are creations of Russian intelligence and don't exist, or we can't allow you to read the story because it comes because it involves the release of someone's private personal information and, uh, and you know, and that's not fair. Well, uh, really? I mean, honest to God, you're going to go with that standard when, when you know, the New York Times published someone's private tax returns? Look, I don't think Trump's tax returns should be, you know, should be private. Um, but there's no law that requires him to release them, so they're not. So the New York Times took a calculated risk publishing them and 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 essentially being kind of an accessory to a felony on the grounds that the public needed to know, and that's how everybody else has treated it, and you don't see anybody on the right saying, how dare they, they should all go to jail. Well, maybe some people said it, but, you know, basically that didn't have any purchase. You know, I would be very, if we had a truly uh, adversarial press that was doing its job, I'd, I'd be going after this question of whether or not anyone on the Biden campaign or in Biden's orbit contacted anyone at any of these platforms in the last, say, 48 hours, because both both the Biden campaign and Harris have on staff uh, former executives of both Facebook and Twitter. They boasted about those connections. We know that more than 90 percent of the donations this year from Silicon Valley employees have gone to the Biden campaign, not to Trump. So I, I don't think it's a hyperbole to say that, you know, these big tech platforms are kind of in the tank for Biden as a starting point for this discussion. Okay. And that's important because of how they understand what disinformation is and isn't, whether it matters if it's domestic disinformation campaign, as we saw. I mean, if you want to define disinformation this way, then the stuff that was that was uh, created out of whole cloth to smear Brett Kavanaugh is a disinformation campaign. It just didn't come from Russia. It came from activist groups. So how they are even defining disinformation is shaded by their their priors. And, and that matters in this context because they have said what they're doing is censorship. If you're going to embrace censorship, then you better be pretty clear what the standards for that are if you're a private company. Okay, I am amused by, we should get to the disinformation point because before we delve into it, Here's what I saw yesterday. I saw 
David Korn of Mother Jones, formerly of the nation, one of the most left-wing journalists in the country, inveighing about the dangers and threats of Russian disinformation. I saw Josh Marshall, one of the most left-wing journalists in America, Talking Points Memo, talking about those sneaky, horrible disinformation Russians with their incredible tentacles and everything. And I swear to God, as has been true for like four years, if you went by their rhetoric and then you compared it to the John Birch Society's rhetoric about the Soviet Union in the late 1950s and early 1960s, this idea of the tentacular creature with its arms and its reach into everything, manipulating our country like we're marionettes, you would have you would be very hard pressed to tell any difference between them. Which is why I'm interested that an actual genuine, you know, out and out commie like Glenn Greenwald is consistent because he basically says all this stuff about Trump and the Russians is nonsense. Because but let's face it, he probably would be for it if it weren't nonsense. Like he he likes you know he likes uh, disinformation campaigns and things or whatever. Anyway. Well, this is also so, going after his business model. Like he he publishes unverified right. intelligence that he gets <laughs> right, his hands but, on all the time. Right. But so all I'm saying is that the line is you can't public not only you cannot publish this or share it. And why can't you publish it or share it? Because the Russians, there are the FBI has indicted people for t- trying to interfere with our election, and this is clearly that. Okay. Now. There are two different issues here. The issues are, A, uh, is the information false and was it invented or created on a computer like Lucy Ramirez and uh, and and the documents, the National Guard, uh, the fake National Guard documents about George W. Bush? Is the, Are these things invented to make Hunter Biden look bad and therefore by association Joe Biden? That's one thing. Then the other thing is, are they real, but you really shouldn't share them because they were handed to somebody by Russian intelligence in order for them to be published and then released? Well, that's a fascinating standard because by that standard, uh, the Pulitzer and Nobel Prize winning and world beating uh, documents that were released uh, that made Glenn Greenwald's reputation and all of that, you know, the Edward Snowden documents uh, should never have been published, which I would argue they shouldn't have been for different reasons. Uh, because they, e- even though they're true, uh, they were basically part of a disinformation campaign since Snowden is sitting there living in, in, in Russia very happily. Uh, <laughs> okay, but I, I do want to go into the the scale of this Twitter effort to to block this thing. So... They have gone completely outside the realm of any sane response to any article, much less this one. The, their their action includes now, according to what I've seen on Twitter, and I've, I've, I'm attempting to verify this myself as we speak, that the Trump campaign's official Twitter Twitter account has been locked insofar as they cannot post new information, in part because they created an image that talks about the details of this story and presumably when this happens you're you're compelled to delete the con the offending content before you can post again and tim carney at the um washington examiner just posted this piece of information about how he can't post a link uh, related to this but the link that talks about these emails and how hunter biden introduced ukrainian businessmen to his father comes from the house judiciary committee it is republicanjudiciary.house.gov that they won't let you post. It is it is beyond ridiculous. Oh, it's not ridiculous For at all. For the record, that's Noah's dog barking this time, not mine. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I just had to finish my okay. thought. I do not think that that is ridiculous at all. I think that it is the key to understanding everything that is going on here, and we will get to that. But first, I would like to talk to you guys about today's sp- sponsor, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high-quality fabrics. 
Socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, whatever you need, Mack Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit that you can count on. I got to say, Mack Weldon was the first clothing that I ever ordered over the internet like four or five years ago. I'm very fond of it. And why is it so awesome? Look, it's a one-stop shop for men's essentials. It promises comfort and a consistent fit in everything. Socks, shirts, underwear, hoodies, polos, active shorts. You're not just going to look great in Mack Weldon. It's versatile. Underwear, socks, shirts, they perform well too. From working out, going out, going to work, or going on a date, Mack Weldon is for everyday life. And its fabric technology is amazing. It offers a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. Mack Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach Level 2 by spending $200, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. So for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. That is... 20% off your first order, macweldon.com slash commentary, and enter promo code commentary, and I'm excited to have Mac Weldon as a sponsor of the Commentary Magazine podcast. Christine, as our resident hater of social media and high-tech com- companies, <laughs> uh, you alluded to the fact that Facebook and Twitter have connections at the, you know, have connections in the senior levels of the Biden campaign. Please elaborate on why the issue is not whether it's silly, but whether it's purposeful, what they did yesterday and, and apparently are still doing. Right. So here's here's where I think um, the conservative uh, anger over the last 24 hours about how the tech platforms handled this is justified. There has been for some time uh, conservative accusations, not all of them warranted, but uh, conservative concerns that these tech platforms are much more aggressive about uh, policing the posts and speech of conservative commentators and conservative uh, publications than they are of mainstream or liberal publications. The evidence for that, I mean, it's difficult, right? We, Congress has vowed to look into it. There, uh, There's plenty of anecdotal individual cases that you can point to and say, this seems sketchy. Um, I still think the jury is out on that. But what I do know is that you see a lot of revolving door uh, personnel uh, between Silicon Valley big tech platforms and Democratic uh, uh, campaigns and in this election cycle in particular. Um, and you see a lot of, uh, I think, deliberate, um, deliberately vacuous and deliberately, uh, quite frankly, ridiculous statements, even from Facebook. So Zuckerberg a year ago gave a speech at Georgetown University where he said, we should err on the side of free speech. We're really trying to you know, balance this. And the context for him saying that is that Facebook has been used in other countries as a platform to incite and and pursue violence against minority groups and against citizens. Um, the powerful use Facebook in other parts of the world to crush their opposition, literally. Like This is not just a, a war of words on a, on a platform as it, as it is here. So that is in the background of his mind when a year ago he gave this speech. However, the, the, the standard that they've set, this idea that we're going to help uh, monitor against misinformation and disinformation, two different things, I should add. It, we're going to fact check before we allow these things to go viral, because once they go viral, we can't control it. So this was an acknowledgement that they built something that they don't know how to control, which was a big step for Facebook to make. The problem is that they don't apply these standards equally. So there's been plenty of stuff that's been posted by major mainstream outlets, later retracted because they've been proven false or or seriously corrected, that Facebook was happy to put out there and everybody shared it. And it, it became the me- mainstream media narrative in some cases. So they haven't. But now when a post story comes out, that's obviously potentially detrimental to the Biden campaign, they clamp down very hard. That is not fair. That is a part that strikes me as potentially a partisan move that they are that they are. Um, and it's part of this. We are saving democracy argument, which is right. a lot of mainstream media outlets making, too. It's like, you know what? The facts we'll get the facts right later. We'll double check our work later. This is an existential crisis. We have to save democracy from Donald Trump. We will do whatever it takes. We are the heroes here. I think what yesterday's event showed is that it's not not everybody's on board with that narrative and they shouldn't be. OK, well, I got two things to say. One. When. BuzzFeed 
published the Steele dossier and said, we're publishing this because it's newsy. We can't verify it. We don't know anything about it. At the time, I said, this piece crosses a Rubicon because the standard rule that like 101 in, in sort of repertorial journalism is you are not supposed to publish a fact that you, you either have no idea whether it's true or that you can't prove is true. You can you could talk about the existence of the dossier. You could hint at what it says, but you don't publish it raw because Rule One Hundred One is you only publish the facts that you know to be facts. And the BuzzFeed literally said, "We have no idea whether this is true or not. Here it is. Take a look." And and I thought at the time, and I said at the time, we are entering a brave new world in which we are we have no idea what the what the ultimate consequences of this will be. And indeed, over the next three years, and almost entirely, despite what uh, the propagandists of the left would say, almost entirely on the right, there it became, the standard was, if you got a bad story about Donald Trump, that's very weakly sourced, and doesn't really have all that much information, but cues to the narrative that you want to play it, go ahead and publish it, because it is, you're accreting to the general storyline that Trump is a Russian agent, Trump is this, Trump is that, Trump is evil, and all of that. So we have a whole raft of stories, and Sora Bamari has a piece in the New York Post detailing some of them, but there are, you know, 20, 30, 40 different stories pretty much in the course of the Russia investigation that were published by many mainstream organizations and won awards that featured allegations and accusations and fact, fact chains that turned out not to be true. And no such standard of this New York Post sort was uh, was applied. So therefore, the central point here is, if you're going to change the standards and weaken the standards and, and, and drag American journalism into the dirt where no longer can you actually trust anything that's being published almost on its face, then yeah, you really have to apply that equally. Like, you know, if the New York Post's article doesn't have a, a proper chain of evidence or you're a little worried that some of the information in it may be sketchy, you cannot apply that singly to this one story or stories like it because then you are then you are claiming literally that it's okay to attack somebody you don't like with information that you acknowledge is sketchy, but it's not okay to attack somebody you like with information and knowledge that is sketchy. That's point number one. Point number two is I think we should have a conversation about what Christine alluded to at the end of her peroration before, which is what matters here is that it's two and a half weeks before the election and the story came out. And this, there is a thing going on in liberal culture in relation to this election. And that has to do with the terror and panic that has been induced in the body politic, not by the possibility that Biden is winning, or, or it is by the possibility that Biden is winning. The polling that shows that Biden is in great shape, the polling in the swing states that shows that Biden is ahead in almost every swing state and is, you know, pulling in t- ahead in places that aren't even swing states, like, you know, or th- classically like Georgia, has made everybody more frightened rather than less. They feel like they are being lulled into a possibly false sense of security. They don't believe it. They don't want to believe the polls. It is the polar emotional opposite of what happened in 2016 when the polling showed that it was a close race and nobody who wanted Hillary to win, believed that it was a close race. They didn't want to believe it. They were complacent. They were self-satisfied. They believed they had it in the bag. And now, because of Trump's magic juju from 2016, we are in, at this moment, Trump, according to 538, has an 85% chance of winning the election. Oddly enough, on this very date, or you know, this week in 2016, real, uh, 538 said that, Hillary had an 85% chance of winning the election. That was, of course, before the before the Comey, um, uh, you know, October 28th Comey moment. 
Um, and so they are terrified. They are in a state of terror. And a story comes out that's bad for Biden that says, oh, this computer came out. It's got all these emails, Hunter. We don't even know what's on them. And their impulse isn't to say, as they would have said in 2016, everyone's going to see through this. This is nonsense. The Amer-. Their impulse is shut it down, strangle it in its crib. No one, Kyle Griffin, no one should be allowed to read it or link to it or mention it. And then Facebook and Twitter, which have become pretty much the only ways that stories spread now, unless other media companies, you know, report them and re-report them and re-report them, go along with it in three hours. And that's where Christine is right. It's There were phone calls. There were phone calls. Jen O'Malley Dillon, the campaign manager of the Biden campaign, called Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg or whatever and said, this is disinformation. The Russians did this. And do you want the entire liberal side of the American political spectrum to say on November 4th that for the second election in a row, you, Facebook, won the election for Donald Trump. Is that what you want? Is that the world you want to live in? Is that the planet? Is that is that the set of circumstances that you want to face in the coming three or four years, not only as a marketing matter, but as a as a matter, you've got conservatives coming after you, Josh Hawley and various others coming after you because they want to revoke this Section 230 protection. You want every liberal in the country to join them? Go right ahead. Suppress this story. And you know what? They did it. That did not happen out of nowhere. I'm not being a conspirator. I know how these things work. It happened. And we know that the, we know who the guy was at Twitter Who's, who got contacted? I mean, I can't remember his name, but he it says communications at Twitter. It was that tweet where he said, we are limiting access to the New York Post story. Hey, my, sorry. But my question is, did they effectively suppress it? And can you effectively suppress a story this way? If yes. You, well, no, I don't think so. I, I, okay. I, don't, I don't know. No one, it's precisely no one would be talking about this story in the absence of this polarization. Well, that, that's what I wonder, because if you try to uh, to just expand on the metaphor here, uh, uh, strangle it in its crib, infanticide becomes the story. Um, and and the and the original the the nature of the original story is never left out. It's it becomes amplified. That's right. There was, if if there was, I'm trying to imagine the circumstances that would make this happen. They're impossible to imagine. But if social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, were to authorize a press release from a Democratic led committee. Uh, you know, they, these, they come from House Democrats or House Republicans on X committee, what have you, and said this information is just too too dangerous for the public to consume. The scale of the freakout would be tough to overstate. I mean, we'd be talking about burning these platforms to the ground in part because of the conditions that John John talked about, which is that they have lent, they have convinced themselves that there are some mysterious forces at work here and any and all tactics and um, uh uh, efforts to 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 uh, co- to combat that are justified up to and including censoring Republican members of the House of Representatives. Well, it is it is beyond the pale. Well, I thought it was really notable that the word dangerous kept being used here, right? Not almost more than disinformation or misinformation. It's like this is dangerous, and the way that the platforms are choosing to justify in advance and and to try to preempt any criticism. Is, is to say not that we have to fact check it, but that even reading this is a danger to the public. And that go, that speaks to the we're saving democracy uh, narrative that they've embraced. The other thing I'll say is that it's a very, as, as a matter of strategy from the platform's perspective, which have been kind of inviting milk toast self-regulation, you know, Facebook keeps, Facebook actually has ads all over tech uh, publications saying, we invite regulation, we love regulation. You know, they're trying to do a form of regulatory capture before they get hammered. 
But they have just absolutely alienated the one group that was still kind of defending them, which is kind of libertarian-ish minded people who don't agree with the Elizabeth Warren attempt to break up monopolies that's been focused on big tech or the conservative arguments about it as as a free speech issue. They had this little core group of people who were going to defend them. That's gone. They they just absolutely decimated that. Well, it's not gone. The ideology is still I mean, everything that lend, lends people like me to say, no, you shouldn't hand over these platforms to capture prone, bureaucratic, unresponsive exactly. institutions. Right. Uh, it still pertains. It's just that we don't have a leg to stand on now because no one's going to listen to us. Well, and which is the greater danger? The, the the platforms themselves who are who appear because of this series of events to be beholden to one partisan uh, group or, you know, sclerotic, bureaucratic, ineffective government. I think more people are going to choose. They'd rather have the government regulating this because at and least well, politics would be transparent then. Well, yeah, I mean, what what they're at, people who advocate for the reform or removal of Section 230 want to see more of this because that's what's going to happen. You get more of this kind of proactive censorship because the liability protections will be gone. So they would have no choice but to be more proactive in in uh, in getting content off the platform or adding uh, warnings to content. Um, so you get more of this, not less, which is why the the whole effort doesn't make any sense to me, unless it is merely a response to your political critics and trying to to undermine their influence and their capacity to make money and just generally hurt people you don't like. So let's talk now about this whole question of, of, of retailing information uh, from this laptop uh, and the this, this story that was told about the laptop, which seems very fishy um, from this uh, guy does it matter what the provenance of the information is if it's if it's true? Because that's also part of this. When WikiLeaks, when the Hillary emails started coming out and the DNC emails started coming out from in 20, 2016, uh, there was a kind of a brief but totally um, uh, uh, impotent moment where people said, we really shouldn't be reporting on this because it's stolen, stolen information. And we really shouldn't be reporting on it. You, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, use a stolen, somebody's stolen television and you can't use this information. And uh, the whole information must be free world basically said, no, that's not right. And that's not true. And so that kind of fell by the wayside. And it all would have been fine if Hillary had won. Let's say it would have been fine. But Hillary lost. And the it was apparently emotionally essential for liberal opinion to believe that the 2016 election was somehow stolen. That's the only way I can look at it. And that therefore this, uh, you know, this sort of where we are now is Anything that is done that might help Donald Trump maybe win election has to be stopped because he will steal it otherwise. In this bizarre parallel to Trumpian logic about the elections being rigged and being stolen, right? So we have this narrative that's already coming out that he'll never leave office. He's going to declare victory on election night, even when he's not winning. And he'll, he'll call out his, you know, the proud boys and his stormtroopers, and they will surround the white house and they'll make riots everywhere and all of this. And I think we've all said that uh, we kind of semi suspect the opposite, which is that, um, if Trump declares victory or, you know, the, or the or the election is really in doubt on election day and after, uh, the, the delegitimization of the election will be entirely on the part of the left. And that what we've seen in Portland and various other is, you know, is just like this is a hootenanny compared to what is going to break out, particularly after polling showing Biden ahead by 10 if Trump somehow uh, pulls this out. And so there's all this kind of weird reverse projection uh, on the part of liberals who say that Trump is doing all these things, some of which he does do. And, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we have not spoken supportively about, about any of that, but that they're doing, and then they accuse him of doing, and then that gives them more justification for doing 
what they're doing, including the suppression of news stories that might have a f- uh, unfavorable tinge toward toward Biden. Well, I want to fully articulate your theory because I love it so much. And I think it's so comprehensive um, and it applies to these this dueling town hall controversy. So Joe Biden is supposed to have a town hall on, tomorrow night on ABC News. NBC News announced, I believe, 48 hours ago, 24 hours ago, pretty recently, that Donald Trump would have his own town hall on NBC's platform um, at the same time. And this resulted in a a freak out of proportions we haven't seen since the New York Post published the Biden story. So precisely eight hours ago. Um, The notion here that NBC News is devoting itself to the Trump campaign just like they gave him that reality show. They really want him back in the White House. And they're they're lending him this platform in an, in an, an assorted and unseemly fashion. And everything that can be done to 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 uh, put pressure on NBC News to abandon this should should be done. As though it has any relevance at all. As though it matters. And it, the only explanation that, that makes any sense is John's explanation. That they think he has some sort of magic sauce that any exposure of this president to the electorate will cast some sort of a spell on, on them and, and he will be uh, reelected and he has to be silenced in every, and everybody near him has to be silenced and everything, every stop has to be pulled so that voters cannot hear from this man because he's going to do it again. Well, and there's a weird, for all of its protection of the American people and protect, you know, preserving democracy rhetoric, it's a deeply cynical and deeply condescending view of the American people, I think. And that's what kind of always annoys the heck out of me when this sort of thing happens. They're assuming that people cannot judge and make and cast a vote on their own, you know, just on their own. Like they literally need to be, pro- now it's the protective thing. Hence again, the, the word dangerous. This is dangerous to you. It's like the way you speak to a child. Don't put your hand on the hot stove. It's dangerous. I I, I really dislike that. And even if you, I, I would rather have a low information, uh, non-Twitter using American cast <laughs> their vote in this election for whomever they choose and trust that than I would listen to, you know, the head of Facebook or, or these network television folks. I mean, it's so Condescending. And it always comes from people in media. People in media vastly overstate the influence of media. Because but it's not just media. that. It's not just that. Again, you have to sort of think about life in the liberal bubble. No one, I mean, I didn't think this was could be true after George W. Bush in like 2003, 2004, 2005. No one has been hated the way Trump is hated by the left. No one. And um, when it's like, oh, Trump's going to be interviewed by anybody other than Fox News. It is genuinely and legitimately thought the case by a great many people that the President of the United States should not be heard from. He does. No one should be allow him to have a megaphone. You shouldn't broadcast him. Yeah, that's, yeah. But legitimizes him. He is more legitimate than exactly. the transmitters exactly. of the information. That's point yeah <laughs> no he got 63 million votes they didn't i mean this is but you, it is a very deep notion i saw it on, on on facebook all day yesterday shame nbc shame to nbc for giving trump a platform giving trump a platform he is the president of the united states you lunatics this was this was happening um at the height of the pandemic when when trump was giving the uh, uh daily task force briefings there was this whole discussion well should we should we show it should we because he's spreading disinformation and then they started sort of cutting in and cutting out right because the reason that this is all done is basically based on this notion that he wait wait wait, i'm sorry this this began literally on january 21st 2017 Right. A year, a year after his inauguration, when CNN refused a day after his inauguration. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was a day after his yeah. inauguration. CNN refused, very uh, ostentatiously, refused to air a White House press conference from Sean Spicer, right? Because of the misinformation that was being broadcast, right? So, by the way, I'm not saying, and I should say, I'm not saying that Trump doesn't pose very complicated issues. I mean, the fact that he and his people say whatever they want to say, whether or not they have any fact basis to say it, and that you know he and they are given the ability or the capacity to sort of you know c- transmit and communicate this message um, 
through through their you know through these kind of you know uh, cameras um uh, is not nothing like you know this is a trump brought uh, a certain type of fact free or fact challenged propagandistic communications to a different level when he became president and i i don't think that it's entirely oh it's not fair this is all just cuz you know he's he's on the right and they're 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 liberals it's not um, however, every solution that they come up with makes it worse. And um, good luck to them. So as I say, I think that they're terrified uh, of this being tagged with some responsibility for this defeat, in theory. If Biden wins, good luck to them, because... Uh, if 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 they think that these last couple of days don't become part of a sustained narrative that will turn the entire Republican Party into enemies of big tech, which the Republican Party has not, the Republican Party was you know one of the or the right was one of the uh, originating forces that helped kind of bring tech into the daily lives of people in part because they needed a different way to communicate because they were shut down by mainstream media. If you want to turn, you know, an entire party that is likely in the wake of a Biden victory to say, take the house and Senate in 2022, and you want them to basically decide that what they're going to do over the next 10 years is destroy big tech. When there is this whole move against big tech on the left as well, good luck. You know, this was an unbelievably dangerous. This was a this was a stupid game that they played with themselves here, in my view. And and you know, I don't believe in it. And they're going to reap the whirlwind. And um, you know, the only thing that could save them, the only thing that could save them, is if it turns out if there's some somebody can actually figure out that some of these emails are some version of Lucy Ramirez that they were invented, they were created. Uh, after the fact, written by Soviet intel, you know, Russian intelligence or whatever. That, but to Noah's earlier point, then then let the process of how we want our adversarial media to behave work its way out. Then that would be uncovered through additional reporting, through more facts coming to light, through through the pro. There is a kind of informal process, and I think what the tech companies did yesterday is impose a formal and deeply unfair process of its own on top of the way that this has organically and, and um, typically been done. Not that you always, you're never going to get the result you want, but that there is a way to do this. You know, a story comes out, some outlets won't even publish it. Somebody publishes it. Then the other outlets are given permission to actually dive deeply into it because now it's a story. I mean, there's a way we do this. That's the story of the Chris Steele uh, dossier. Exactly. Um, I, there was the, this, this effort to, to, Butlerize the House Judiciary. House Judiciary Republicans has radicalized me, and I am bereft of all sympathy now. Um, but you do have to ex- understand that these companies have been getting terribly conflicting signals from the political class on all sides of the aisle. They have been told that they have to act proactively in order to stop people from having access to information they don't like. On both sides, both of them have been guilty of this. And if you're you're one of these companies, I can understand why you are under so much conflicting pressure now to act, to act first, think later, that this is what you get. So in part, the political class has, on both sides, has made this possible. Well, I, I le- really have no sympathy for them. Like, I'm crying bitter tears that the 5,000 millionaires at Facebook have a hard job to do. You know what? Screw them. You know? So work harder. Well, and it's Be smarter. I, I think it's don't even walk around. Don't walk around at you know whining about how hard you have it. But smarter okay. in this case is not to act. Right. So the problem right. though is but that that is smarter. There's a bigger to, to use some of the left's favorite phrases. There is an existential and systemic problem in play here that a lot of people have been pointing out for for since Facebook began. That that bias to move move fast and break shit was Mark Zuckerberg's uh, mantra when he started Facebook. That's baked into how it operates. It's baked into how Twitter operates. It's what allows for the engagement that drives the ad revenue that keeps them in all those millions and billions. So 
there's there's the structural issues in the at those on those platforms are serious and actually worthy of of thoughtful serious uh looking at by by the federal regulatory agencies that we've given that power to and all of that is now going to be politicized uh, understandably so in a way that's going to probably make a, a real reform and transformation uh, less likely not more hey crushing morosity concludes hey. the podcast yet again so we will be back to you tomorrow for Abe Christina. No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>